Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of Code Enterprise, which was held November 14th and 15th in San Francisco. If you like this interview, please leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. Before we get going, Jeff needs to talk about spectacles, Snapchat spectacles. Why? He's a, in, I, he's, I need to. We were just talking about it backstage. You're excited, right. though. Okay. Like, you are very yeah. excited okay. about it. Uh, I think it's, it's pretty impressive to see what he's done with that. Uh, a colleague of mine just completely coincidentally was up in the Big Sur area this weekend. Uh-huh. And uh, that's where they dropped that uh, kind of uh, vending, vending machine. Yeah. Uh, it looks like a minion. And uh, my buddy was able to get a few pairs, so he gave me one yesterday. And uh-huh. it's... It's very impressive. Why is that? Tell me why. I, you know, if you think about um, Evan's background, where the company's been, and doing an amazing job with the initial product, which was an ephemeral messaging product, and then evolving that into what's increasingly becoming a mainstream media play and kind of turning our understanding of media on its head, that, that in and of itself would be impressive. To then introduce a hardware product, mm-hmm. and having never developed a hardware product, and having decided to do a hardware product that Google tried and that a lot of folks rejected by virtue of certain elements of it, and well, then it was, to distribute it. Was just it. Awful. it was just awful. Well, I, I think he's been incredibly thoughtful. When you say you know, it wasn't popular, a lot of people had a problem with the fact, for example, that you couldn't tell when you were being filmed. And so they solved for that by putting the little lights on the side so you can see when you're right. being filmed. And rather than make it you know, some picture of the future, it is this really playful, kind of stylish yeah, no, I agree. pair of glasses. And then this whole thing with the, the vending machine, which feels like, I mean, the big surplay, to me it felt like a real-life Pokestop. And mm-hmm. then you start thinking, why hasn't anyone else done this, given mm-hmm. the success that Pokemon was having? And just one thing after the chargeable case, and mm-hmm. just, I think, very thoughtful, and it demonstrates a, a really, really strong product sense. So, so you like your spectacles? Not for me, per se. Okay. I don't know that I'll be running around with, with spectacles. I'm not sure I was the, the target demo. Right. But, um, what did you take a picture impressive. of? You've worn them, right? I, I wore them in my office yesterday. And I'll, I'll give you an example of where I would have used them, in all, in all honesty. Uh, I shared something several weeks ago. Uh, we just moved our headquarters from Mountain View to Sunnyvale. And, uh, Back in Sunnyvale. Yeah, it's on the... Yeah, don't PTS. So uh, yeah, right, right, work for you right, on the, right on the border of uh, Sunnyvale and Mountain View. And part of our campus will actually be in Mountain View. And as we were leaving the old campus, uh, they cleared it out. So it was, there were essentially no more people. They cleared out the furniture. And it was the only office I'd ever known for LinkedIn. So it was a very nostalgic moment. Mm-hmm. And I took a picture that I eventually shared and talked about how much the place had meant to all of us. And as I was taking the picture, I was trying to capture the moment. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult because of the lack of perspective. And what I was trying to capture was I had been walking around just in my own thoughts. And sure enough, had I had spectacles, I would have just tapped it once, started walking around, right. and it would have been this moment. Right. And it would have captured it perfectly. So that would have been an example. So is the news now you're about to join Snapchat now no, they're going no. public? Snap. It's Snap. Snap. Whatever. I'm calling I'm, it Snapchat. I'm, I'm not. not I'm but sorry. Uh, I'm sure. I think I just heard you talking about the IPO now. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. It's impressive what he's doing. It's really impressive. So when you're talking about that, you're all super excited about this. Uh, are you excited to be a, as excited to be a Microsoft executive? 
Yeah, it's not a Microsoft executive per se. I'm going to continue to run LinkedIn. Say, yes, you are actually a Microsoft well, executive. Well, it's, it's, yes, I'll be part of Microsoft, but a Microsoft Which executive. Which means you're a Microsoft executive. I'm not going to, I have no problem being a Microsoft executive, but first and foremost, the CEO of LinkedIn. That's the way I, I see myself. That's the role. The product of Microsoft. Anyway, sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bug you. That's the role that I'm in. Okay. And Satya, very much by design, from day one, set this up so that we remain independent and our first priority is continuing to grow LinkedIn. So that's where I'm gonna be focused. I'm gonna be a part of Microsoft and I am excited to be a part of Microsoft. I think the work that he's doing there, the work that the team's doing, you know, long before uh, we announced the combination and before I had sat down with Satya in February to, to talk about it, uh, I had remarked very publicly about how amazed I was at the job he was doing in such a short period of time, changing so much about the path that they were on. I think it's a, a, a far more open company. I think the innovations are coming fast and furious. You saw uh, just recently with the Surface Studio as an example. Uh, I think it's more agile. And having met now a number of their senior executives and, and different teams throughout the organization, it's all consistent. And what he's trying to do there, make it more purpose-driven. Uh, I am excited to be a part of that. Is that deal closed? No. What was Oh, okay. sorry. I was just gonna. Uh, I want to know what the process was like because I mean, we all read kind of the, the TikTok, TikTok yeah. right? It came out, and you were doing a mighty fine job of talking with a number of different players. So, what was that like? I, it was all kind of laid bare in the in the disclosure. Yeah, some of the folks commented that it's rare to see that degree of transparency, uh, and that was important to us so that people had a, a clear understanding of the process. Uh, you know, I sat down with Satya in February, and uh, we eventually ended up in discussions with uh, some other companies as well. Salesforce, Google, Facebook. I'm not sure all of them have been publicly disclosed, <laughs> other than company A, B, C, right. etc. And uh, it was a it was an interesting process. I think it it, it worked out for the best, and. Uh, what, um, yeah, I, I mean, can I go back a little further than that? What prompted you to go there? Now, I know you had that quarter where your stock just fell right through the floor, mm -hmm. that one quarter, and then you did a little better the next quarter, but the stock didn't return. And one of the things I was thinking, because I, I do compare it to Yahoo, how Yahoo, there was some point where you knew you had to sell. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Because one of the things I, um, I think I put this sentence in one of the stories, I said, I said if Jeff Weiner was a Russian female gymnast, he would have gotten 10 on the dismount. Um, because you, he would, um, because you really did sell at exactly the right time with very little ego, you moved it out. What made you want to sell? Like, what did you, you, you don't wake up and say, I think I'll sell my independent company of which I'm CEO. It's not a, it's a forward decision, but it's not typically the decision most people want to do. Well, no, I don't think you wake up one morning and say that to yourself. For us, it's a process, and it's a process based on, first and foremost, our mission and what we're trying to accomplish. And when you think about how we can best position the company to accomplish that mission, to realize our vision, creating economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce, it comes back to scale time and time again. It's a question of scale. And we all live in a world now, particularly in the technology industry, where scale means more than it ever has. And you see these tech titans uh, continue to grow, uh, continuing to invest in assets and make investments in assets. I know AI has been a hot subject here today. Uh, there's only a handful of companies in the world that have really reached critical mass in terms of the resources required to advance AI in a meaningful way so that it can create value for folks. 
Uh, cloud infrastructure would be another example. I mean, we can keep going on. And the opportunity, there's only a handful of companies in the world, particularly in technology, that reach over a billion people with their footprint. Microsoft is one of them. Microsoft also has the AI investment. Microsoft also has the cloud investment. And above all else, we have very similar sense of purpose. But what, did you, what I want to know is, what did you say, oh, no, I cannot do this with my business? I cannot grow this anymore? Wall Street's not going to give me a chance? Or what, what, what was the tipping point for you? Because, again, you don't go, I think I'll sell my company unless you feel like you have to. It was less about we cannot or we can't do this, and it's more about what's the best way to move forward. How will we have the greatest likelihood of achieving the kind of scale we want to create the value that we're trying to create in the world? you didn't think you could do on your own? I think independently it would have been more challenging than when combined with a company like Microsoft. So, you, so that's what you set out to do? We're going to now sell ourselves? No, didn't set out to do it. Uh, I sat down with Satya. We talked. Uh, when Satya and I originally sat down, uh, we were talking about ways in which the companies could work together. And when we realized the number of different ways and the depth of the potential for working together and how complementary the assets and strategies were, uh, the discussion turned to two dimensions. One was sense of purpose and the other was how we would potentially structure this if we were going to combine. And on purpose, uh, it's amazing how uh, similarly the companies think about the world in terms of for LinkedIn, uh, connecting the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful for Microsoft. It's to empower every individual and organization on the planet to achieve more. We're essentially trying to do the same thing. We've been coming at it from different perspectives. Microsoft through software and this evolution into the cloud and LinkedIn through a professional network. And when you combine those assets, we think both companies are better prepared and better positioned uh, to achieve what we're trying to achieve. Can you talk a little bit about Salesforce? Mark had a lot to say yesterday about how he felt played by, I think, played? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, he said when no, he... No, I think when, it was played. I don't remember. Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But he said he basically, when he saw your stock, you know, go through the floor that one, that one quarter, he was like, this is a great buy. And at which point he kind of implied that he reached out or, or started to get aggressive. Um, and yeah, he was dis sounded disappointed. It's not just a buy, but that he had had similar discussions with Microsoft that didn't end well, that didn't end well for him. He had had similar discussions about being bought by being Microsoft. Bought by Microsoft that didn't end well. Um, how, can you talk about why you picked Microsoft over a Salesforce or blank, blank, blank? Well, he said it publicly. The Mad Libs? No, it's Google. Isn't it's this Mad Libs? Yes, blank, you know blank, blank. Give me a verb. Give me a noun. Uh, so I haven't, I haven't been asked this before. As a matter of fact, I think this is the first time I'm on stage in this context post the uh, announcement. But uh, first thing I'd say about Mark, Mark and I hadn't had a chance to work together in like that. Uh, prior to sitting down to talk about combining the companies, and he was a class act throughout the entire process. And uh, that's, you know, I was really struck by that, and uh, I enjoyed uh, working with him through that process, and it, it didn't work out the way he was hoping. Why was that? Uh, at the end of the day, the Microsoft offer was of greater value. It was an all-cash offer versus stock and cash, uh, where, you know, Salesforce would have potentially... Uh, been diluted in a way where the stock component of the offer wouldn't have held its value as, as much, and certainly in the immediate term. And, uh, you know, it, it came down to the value. I think we were in a, a, a fortunate position that we could create value uh, with a number of the different companies that we were talking with. Uh, and with Microsoft, as I mentioned earlier, it turned out to be a great fit. Absolutely. It was a good deal, for sure, for from, you. From a product standpoint, I mean, and, and I know it's early, and you haven't started doing this integration yet, but it seems, I think we're all assuming that there's just this obvious, 
LinkedIn will be the social layer for all of Microsoft Office stuff. Is that is it as simple as that? Is it is it you know now there's an identity behind my Word documents and Excel spreadsheets and all that stuff, or or is it? How do you see the two? And as related again, Mark, who seems to be upset about the situation, um, was talking about the 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 use of the data in a, in a way that res, was restricted others from using it. That you know that you create this exclusive data sets that others can't get access to, and that's why it's being objected to. In Europe, I guess that's where he's, that's the forum he's chosen to object to this deal. So talk first about what you see it happening and then the objections to creating this exclusive data set that others sure. cannot access. So, uh, Kurt, I think you've summarized it well. I think we can provide a social fabric uh, within Microsoft's stack and to the over billion customers that are using products like uh, Office, like Windows, like Outlook, uh, increasingly on Azure. And Microsoft has always had the ability to reach those customers with productivity tools that create value for individuals and their organizations. And uh, with LinkedIn, uh, Microsoft's now going to be in a position with those products to have a better understanding of who's using those products and services and how to connect them with people that can create even more value, how to facilitate collaboration. So, you know, imagine that you're in office, you're doing a PowerPoint presentation, and uh, you need help, and that could be help with uh, using PowerPoint itself. It could be help uh, with the knowledge or expertise that you're utilizing to create the PowerPoint presentation. And so now when you go up to the the help tab, uh, rather than get an FAQ or rather than get that directory, uh, you'd be in a position to tap other people within your network. You'd be in a position to tap people you don't know but who possess that expertise. You'd be in a position to tap freelancers who are offering their services uh, for a fee. Uh, you'd be in a position to tap our learning materials and a repository of coursework that we acquired through Linda, now LinkedIn Learning, uh, within Outlook to gain a much better understanding of the people that you're communicating with. Uh, if you're not already connected to those folks, you're going to be able to add them to your network at the click of a button uh, to have more context in terms of who you're going to be meeting with when you're meeting with them. Uh, we already have a calendar integration capability within our flagship application that will notify me when I'm about to meet with someone who's not in my network. And I can see what we have in common as an icebreaker. And then afterwards, it'll prompt me to connect with that person. And you start to think about that in the context of what's possible with Microsoft's tools. So, I mean, these are a few uh, of many, many examples of what's going to be possible. And then how do you answer the question, that's the problem, says the European Union? Yeah, well, I think it was Mark that you were commenting on earlier. And, you know, it was interesting. The first time I saw and read about uh, Mark taking issue... Uh, he was commenting on something that a Microsoft executive had said. Yes, yes, uh, and, the one he doesn't like. And it, it, it was interesting because uh, LinkedIn will continue to determine how LinkedIn's data is being leveraged going forward. Mm-hmm. Salesforce is uh, one of our most valuable partners and has been uh, since we introduced our Sales Navigator, our sales solutions tools right. that provides uh, sales intelligence within a CRM capability through integration. Uh, you know, we launched with Salesforce as a partner most recently. It was several months ago uh, at an event we did for that product. We announced we'd be uh, broadening the API access to include Oracle and Infor and SAP and HubSpot and Sugar CRM. And, you know, the more open our ecosystem is, the more value we can create for members and customers. So that will continue to be a first principle as we go forward. 
So you are allowed to, do, you, his worry was that this was exactly what the executive did say, which was that it was an exclusive data stream to Microsoft customers. But I don't think that's what the executive said. I don't think, okay. I think it was Scott. Yeah. And I don't think Scott said it was exclusive. I think Scott is thinking about ways in which he can create unique value for his customers. I see. And to be more effective at competing at what is a very, uh, intense competitive right. landscape. Exactly. I mean, there's, you know, Mark has done a, a brilliant job over time of building a leading CRM provider, and they have uh, significantly more market share than the other CRM providers. So, yeah, they're hoping to keep that. That's, I think, the I goal. I think it's going to be more competitive, which is going to be great for customers, and it's going to be great for the individuals that leverage those tools. So, can you talk a little bit about the broader work scene? Um, one of the things that uh, you've always been interested in is the idea of constant learning. You bought lynda.com, other things like that. Talk a little bit about where the workplace is going um, as, as you see it from your vantage point um, and how you, the good and the bad, because this was the topic of this election was work, like people who don't have it, who are mad about it, who do have it, who are taking it away and things like that. Can you just talk a little bit about where you imagine the next workplace looks like? Yeah, I mean, that's a, yes, it's a, a broad, broad question. So let's... Um, the rules well, of work have changed. <laughs> I saw that tagline. It was very clever. Very clever. very clever. So you're very clever people. So uh, let's start with uh, those that have worked, those that don't, in the role of learning uh, mm-hmm. going forward. And um, amongst the people that don't have work, the increasing disenfranchise, disenfranchisement and some of the frustration and anger that occurs and the unintended consequences of that. So... Uh, with regard to uh, those that don't have work, you know, unfortunately, uh, there is going to be increasing displacement of workers. Uh, the World Economic Forum has uh, projected that by 2020, as many as 5 million net jobs will be displaced as a result of new technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, robots, etc. cetera. Uh, I think there'll be a total of 7 million jobs that are expected to be displaced, uh, 2 million ads as a result of new technology, so 5 million net displacements. And it seems like every other week now, you read a new story about a company that's going to be deploying new robot technologies or drone technologies or autonomous driving capabilities, and this is going to displace folks. And increasingly, I think it's really, really important that every time these stories are coming out, every time these companies are investing in those kinds of capabilities, that we're thinking about what's happening to the folks who are going to be displaced and how we are reskilling and retraining them and how we are providing them the, the skills they need for the jobs that do exist and the jobs that are and will be and not just the jobs that once were. And there are plenty of what's referred to as middle skill jobs available in this country today. You know, we have a record number of available jobs in the United States right now. Middle skill, would say. Middle skill is more than uh, a four-year uh, high school diploma, but less than a four-year degree, uh, university, higher education. So somewhere in the middle, so vocational training, junior college, et cetera. And uh, medical technician, for example. Um, certain uh, IT roles. Uh, You can train and certify somebody to take on those roles. And so we can do a better job through technology. You take a platform like LinkedIn. It's not exclusive to LinkedIn by any stretch, but you take a platform like LinkedIn, and we're developing this economic graph. And by virtue of developing this graph, we have access to data that will suggest for any given locality, whether it's in this country or any country in the world, uh, where the fastest growing jobs are, the skills required to obtain those jobs, the skills of the aggregate workforce, the size of the gap between those two things, 
and how we can best train individuals in those localities to take the jobs that are and will be. Uh, we can create just-in-time curriculums for these junior colleges, vocational training facilities, increasingly higher educational facilities and four-year universities, I think, will also benefit from more closely aligning their curriculum to where the jobs are. And so, you know, historically, you go back a few decades, this would have been science fiction. And now it's very much our reality. It's just a question of knowing how to leverage this new capability, these new infrastructures. That's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is the, the, the day where you could go to school, go to college even, study something, graduate, and then have a job for the rest of your life, I think those days are over. I think we all need to be very we open. We all think those days are over. I mean. We all need to be open to the idea of continuous education and constantly keeping up with what new skills are required. And so I think learning and development, either within organizations and sponsored and subsidized through organizations, or for individuals who are looking for work who aren't a part of a company. Do you think that Silicon Valley, I was asking Diane this just a second ago, understands that, understands their impact? And we've talked about that a lot. And one of the, issue, one of the issues this weekend was Mark saying they had no impact on the election, when they clearly had an impact on the election. Um, it depends on how much, who knows, but, but a lot of Silicon Valley likes to abrogate its responsibility for the tools it's created. Um, and the damage it's done, some of them have done. Benefits, they like to focus on the benefits. and. You know, AI will bring us a happy, shiny future where you'll be able to just talk to the little thing in your ear and it will get you whatever you want. You'll be able to Snapchat your photos. But it has all kinds of implications um, beyond that that are, that are not positive and that are not, and, you know, I'm not trying to be the school marm of Silicon Valley, but, you know, sometimes it, it seems that they don't understand the implications of the money they're sucking out of the system and the power that they've had and then not the responsibility back to it. I think it is incumbent upon all of us in the Valley, anyone responsible for a technology that can reach beyond historically what was possible to think about the unintended consequences of what we're doing. And I think companies in the Valley have the best of intentions. And you can see it in their mission statements, you can see it in their visions, you can see it in the way in which they take great pride in the value that they create for their members and customers, the individuals that use those products. But there are unintended consequences. And for years, you and I have been in this industry for a while. And how many times have people been mentioning and talking about the fact that technology, the rate of innovation, has accelerated to the point where it's exceeding society's ability to make sense of it all. And we kept saying it and kept saying it as a forward-looking statement. And we're now all experiencing it. Day in and day out, it's happening. Not everyone is, is capable of understanding the consequences of these things, but we need to ask the questions and we need to be open to the fact that there could be unintended consequences. And then we need to be really thoughtful about what we're going to do about it, as opposed to just rejecting the idea wholesale and saying, no, that's not what we're trying to accomplish. Right. They continue to reject the idea. They do. You can just say, many, and so, I mean, Mark's statement was, we have no, uh, have no idea what happened. The, of fake news, and that's just a small little slice of, of issues that went on. But if you read the statement, it's pretty much as we're a platform, we have no responsibility. Um, what should Silicon Valley do? Should they build uh, to create new jobs or create new workplaces? Build things here, move things back here, um, so that there's put manufacturing in rural areas. What, what is the response? You know, and here you have a company dedicated to people finding jobs. Like, what is the? What are the? Th concrete things, not the, oh, perhaps may, maybe we really do have an impact to what 
should we do about the impact we clearly have without, you know, stop arguing that particular point? Yeah, so with regard to creating economic opportunities, with regard to creating jobs, I think that can be addressed very directly. So speaking for LinkedIn, we have been investing and testing in what we call LinkedIn cities. So uh, the state of Colorado and uh, the city of Phoenix, where we're working uh, with local government, we're working with local universities, we're working with career centers to do training finders so that people who are seeking middle-skilled jobs can actually go online, they can look to where those jobs are, they can see the certifications required, and we can either matchmake them with the certification provider or through the acquisition of Linda, we can provide that certification ourselves. So that's one thing we can start to do and not just make that an experiment, not just make that something that we're doing in a city or two, but start to expand that throughout the country. That's one. Two, there was recently some research that was distributed, you may have seen it, I think it was over this past weekend, that talked about the fact that the, the vast majority of venture capital dollars in this country are distributed to really three states, uh, California, Massachusetts, and New York. And when you think about the other 47 states getting access to what roughly 30% or 25% of the dollars, uh, we can do something about that. And I'm reminded of amazing organizations like Venture for America. I'm not sure if you're familiar no, with that organization. It's like Teach for America, but with entrepreneurs. And so it uh, takes uh, students coming out of school, uh, some of the most talented students anywhere that could get a lot of different jobs, and it brings them in as fellows, and they go into hard-hit American cities, and they work with startups in those cities. And that not only helps those cities start to create companies that are going to create jobs, but it provides them access and exposure and it develops perspective that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And increasingly, you're going to start to see these fellows creating their own companies and hopefully sticking around those geographies. And I think uh, an organization like Venture for America, and it's one example of many, are in positions where they can facilitate the deployment of capital in ways that people on the coast may not have access to, may not, may not be able to see those kinds of opportunities. So those would be a couple of examples. I'll give you another one that's a little more abstract, but for companies in the Valley that control platforms that are being used by hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, I think we all need to do a better job of shining a light on what's working. I think right now everyone's spending a lot of time talking about what's broken. Mm -hmm. What's and working what? We're spending a lot of time pointing fingers and accusing and lamenting and defending as opposed to, as an example, Venture for America. I mean, there are countless examples of organizations and people that are trying to close these gaps. You know, one of the things I, I recently shared uh, following the election was the fact I want to spend less time talking about how to close the gap between Americans and start spending a lot more time actually doing it. And I think we're all in positions, those of us in the Valley, that help manage these platforms that other people are deriving their news from, or their sense of community. I think we can all shine a brighter light on what's working. I'm curious. I'm really fascinated with what you're doing with education in Linda. Uh, you know, this idea of we know every job posting. We know what skills you need for that job, and we have the courses here. I'm curious two things. One, how are you validating, you know, those Linda courses? How are you working so that if I take a course on LinkedIn or on Linda, that I can actually go to an employer and that means something versus, you know, just getting an online check? And then number two, is there a, an opportunity for you guys to do, like, a LinkedIn college degree? Like, hey, you can actually take a bunch of these Linda courses and that, that results in some kind of formal degree. Uh, you know, you have a basic computer science understanding courtesy of LinkedIn. Like, is that something you've considered? 
Uh, haven't gone as far as considering a, a full MOOC. degree um, or even a MOOC. I mean, the first step would be providing some kind of certification, and even that would be second order. Right now, we want to provide the courses that our members need to acquire the skills that they the want job. and desire to get the jobs that are out there. And we're in a position where we can do that with far greater certainty and more accuracy in terms of which courses we should be investing in producing, and then making sure we're getting the right courses, just making them available, making sure our members who search for a job, we're in this unique position of understanding what skills they have by virtue of their profile, uh, the skills they need for the job that they're looking at, and getting that coursework in front of them. Then, now to your point, even before we get the certifications, we can do a better job, and increasingly we'll be investing in closing that loop. So once you have the skill or certification, whether it's through us or a third-party provider like some of the MOOCs, we could create a facet. So if you're a recruiter and you're using our recruiter tool, that you could search for people that have that specific certification, that have that specific skill, and they gain that skill by acquiring it through a specific provider. And part of the challenge in this country is uh, less about the skills and the certifications, although that's a problem, and it's a, a tractable problem. It's as much about society and culture as it is about a skills gap, because historically here, there's been a tremendous amount of weight that's been given to four-year university degrees, and not nearly enough weight, in my opinion, that's given to vocational training facilities and right. vocational training certifications. You take a, a market like Germany, not everyone's yeah. going to a four-year university in Germany. And the vocational track there has led to incredible success. By the way, some of the people going down that track end up becoming the CEOs of the companies that employ people with four-year degrees because of their expertise and their experiences. So I think we would do much better if we stopped ensuring that everyone had to have a four-year degree to be able to get certain kinds of jobs and started being open to the fact that there's a much broader array of talents and skills and perspectives and experiences that people can be successful with. Oh, that's very Peter Thiel of you. Um, questions from the audience, anybody? And then if not, I have one more question. Go ahead. Yoel Vleidersdorf, Wild Ventures. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big user of LinkedIn. You know, 12,000 connections. I was the first, one of the first 100,000 people. Um, I'm also a big user of Microsoft, Microsoft Office, and, and other services. Now, both of these have competitors, right? Uh, Microsoft competes with Google and others for, for Office products. Um, when, I read, when I first read about the, the combination of the two, I thought, Jesus, this is really powerful. And I had my imagination going about, okay, what if uh, you know, my Word document or my Outlook could have um, seamless access to my, to my LinkedIn information? So I had all these ideas, but over, you know, the, over the last few months, I haven't really read anywhere where you know, either you guys or, or Microsoft or somebody else even came, came up with a whole list of here are all the amazing features that, you know, that we're going to have. I mean, this is a real opportunity for, for Microsoft to get an, an edge on, on, on Google and for you guys to get an edge on Salesforce or whatever else. Well, what are some of those features that we should expect to see? So we, we touched on a few of them. So you had mentioned Outlook, but uh, bringing our identity data into Outlook so that you have a better understanding of the people that you're communicating with and that you're are, are reaching out to you who you may be less familiar with uh, would be one area. Facilitating collaboration within Office would be another area, and I think there's a, a pretty exciting vision there for what's going to be possible, so stay tuned. Not, not ready to talk about it here. And just to remind folks, we haven't closed yet. When is may, closing? May have been what we've publicly said by the end of this year. 
So um, uh, learning and development, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities to get these learning materials more deeply embedded contextually into both Office and Windows. Uh, you can imagine if you're using an application within Windows, take Photoshop, uh, for example, and uh, you're in Windows, you're using Photoshop, and uh, you delay. So you're using it, you've opened it up, but it's pretty clear that you're not able to take that next step. Uh, from within the Windows Chrome, uh, we can show a notification that asks you if you want to learn more about Photoshop and then provide you the ability to play that course contextually integrated into that experience. That would be another example of what's possible. Uh, on, the, you know, on the customer side with regard to the, the business, uh, you think about where Microsoft is taking Dynamics right now as a platform with uh, multiple business applications that can live within that platform. Uh, whether that's CRM or HCM or ERP. And again, leveraging our data, leveraging our business intelligence, leveraging our insights in context to create more value for the professionals using those tools is going to be another area that I think holds a lot of promise and potential. More to come, apparently. So you talked a little bit about how you're opening up from Salesforce into N4, SAP, Oracle. We talked a little bit here about the examples of Microsoft. You know, when are you thinking about opening up the API to let any arbitrary small startup, two-person, five-person, you know, maybe an internal organization take advantage of the data that you have in LinkedIn, some of the BI that you have in LinkedIn for us to do things that you haven't even imagined, right? Obviously, you've thought about the Photoshop example. You've thought about using Linda. You've thought about doing that stuff. What about, you know, you know when will that be so any of us can build on, you know, the open APIs? Yeah, we, we had a quote-unquote open API program, and I think it was frustrating for a lot of different folks. I think it was frustrating for certain developers. It was certainly frustrating for our platform team that had to oftentimes say no to folks. And what ends up happening in those situations is you have to be really clear about where the lines of value are being created. And the last thing we want to do is call something a completely open API program, and it's that in name only. So what we ended up doing was creating API programs for the distinct parts of our business. From a consumer perspective, with regard to leveraging identity information, the share button, that kind of stuff, that's fairly open. With regard to small, medium-sized businesses, or any company for that matter, that has commercial intent, uh, in those situations, it's important that we're working directly with those developers uh, to understand how that's going to impact our ecosystem and whether or not that's going to end up being competitive. All right, last, very last question for you. I'm just curious, if you weren't a Microsoft executive, say, what would you do? Uh, if you weren't going to be this fantastic Microsoft. Yes, you, yeah, what Microsoft. would you do? You got excited about spectacles when you came out here. You looked like you were going to just die. But what, <laughs> what, what, what would you do? You've been in, you worked at Yahoo. Mm -hmm. uh, you worked in Hollywood. Um, LinkedIn, which was a real strange move at the time, I thought, but you did very well. Um, what would you do? Like, what would you, if you weren't doing this, and obviously... Yeah. So I, I got into business because I was interested in education reform, which may not sound like a direct... Well, you were in Hollywood, right? Well, I, I got, when I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go to school, I was very interested in education reform, and I thought I could pursue one of two paths. I could do public sector and either teach or administrate, legislate, regulate, or I could go private sector and hopefully amass enough influence and resources that I could make a difference that way. And I elected to do the latter, but I've kept one foot in education the entire time. Um, very fortunate to be on the board of DonorsChoose.org. You know, Charles Best, an amazing guy. I'm, I'm involved in the Boys and Girls Club of the Peninsula. Uh, Peter Fortenbaugh does a fantastic job there. 
And throughout my career, I've been very fortunate, the companies I've worked with, to be involved in educational programs there. Yahoo had a classroom buddy program when I was at uh, Warner Brothers. They had uh, the ability to teach kids through uh, Sports Illustrated for Kids and Timing for Kids. And I would more likely than not do something related to education. Education. Yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like one of the most important things we can do, especially now, is teach compassion in schools. That would be nice, wouldn't it? And, you know, there's an awful lot of focus on traditional disciplines like math, like reading, and like writing. But I think we also need to teach compassion. So you didn't like my idea of the CEO of Disney, did you? I'm very happy where I currently am. All right, nice. Well done. Well done. I'd totally take that job. You get free park service. Anyway, Jeff Wiener, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. And be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, in which Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Friday, I host Two Embarrassed Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to your podcasts.